Previously on the Mario Rosenstock podcast. So in I go, and Tony is, is looking after me, he's with me, you know, and I'm, I'm waiting kind of, kind of in a trolley, but off to one side. And uh, then he's outside the, the curtain giving my, uh, you know, details to the nurse. And she's saying, and your friend's profession? And he says, uh, DJ. No, wait. Top DJ. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. That's just a little clip from my episode with Tom Dunn a few weeks ago. Tom is a superb storyteller. A raconteur par excellence is our Tom. And he told me so many great stories. The bit you just heard... Uh, is about the time Tom was rushed to hospital all of a sudden. Um, It sounded serious. And our dear late friend and colleague, God bless him, Tony Fenton, of all people, was there at the hospital waiting uh, for Tom uh, to sort out the paperwork for his admission. Uh, Wait and you hear the punchline to it. It's a cracker. Definitely check out that full episode with Tom Dunn. But of course, only after you've listened to this one. So have you ever wondered what really goes on behind the scenes in Leinster House? Um, Are you curious about what politicians are like when the cameras aren't on them? What do they talk about? What are they really like when they're out in the wild, away from their comfort zone, away from the comfort of the doll? Lise Han spent many years as a parliamentary sketch writer, where her job was to unearth the human side of politicians, I suppose you could say, uh, and often the quirky, bizarre side of politics. So in many ways, her job overlaps with what I do every day on Gift Grub on the radio as well. We have a lot in common. So when we caught up in my podcast studio, we shared some great stories about some very funny moments. Politicians out of their comfort zones and also the really awkward moments, um, which you know are bound to happen when you meet the TD or minister that you've just lampooned um, maybe a couple of days before. We chatted about loads more too, including why Lise is responsible in many ways for Jim Sheridan making the film In the Name of the Father, which he talked about on this podcast not so many episodes back. Uh, her great love of Manchester United and her friendship with the late Veronica Guerin and loads, loads more. Some of the Fianna Fáil press officers were in there and they called me over and they were like, oh, we heard it happen this morning that like Brian Lennon bumped into you and he tore into you and he gave you hell and there was like a big ding dong and I was like, that's not how I remember. I remember Eric Cantona came in and of course we both, like the only thing we ever fell out, you know, about was, you know, which one of us, Eric Cantona, would, would basically ride, you know. Yeah. And, uh, I will ride you we, both. <laughs> well, you know what? I like the hat trick. <laughs> I go for the hat trick. A brace. Two of them. <laughs> Just in the course of interrogating him, it turned out that Daniel had actually been in Dublin the day that this particular murder had happened, right? Just by sheer chance, right? And there was a couple of other coincidences. And at one stage, the cops just suddenly turned into cops, right? Yeah, they went into the And they, they just suddenly went, just the possible this guy did it, right? Focus. Anyway, in the back of the taxi, Leo suddenly comes out with, Ian, I, I, something actually you don't know about me. That, um, when you were in Densey's Den, I actually sent a painting into you and you, you, you held it up on the telly. Oh, no! From Leo, aged five. No! <laughs> <laughs> Keep it right here for my chat with Lee Hand in just a couple of minutes' time.
And just to mention before we go on, um, it's worth pointing out that Lise and I chat quite a bit about film director Jim Sheridan in this podcast, as he's a good friend of hers and ours, I suppose you could stay by extension, as indeed is his brother Peter Sheridan, and both of them have appeared on this podcast in the past. Uh, so Jim was a recent guest on the podcast, but the interview with Lise was recorded a couple of weeks ago, uh, just before Jim's wife, Fran, sadly passed away, which is why we don't mention it here. So uh, I'd like to take this opportunity to extend our condolences to Jim and his family, and all of our thoughts are with them at this time. Anyway, moving on. Thank you so much for your emails uh, that you've been sending directly to me, Rosenstock at gmail.com. I read them all. Um, I think it's a great way for you to get in touch because um, it is a personal email of mine. Um, and it's lovely to see that you've been enjoying the show um, and taking note I'm taking note of all your guest suggestions, of course, and any suggestions you might have for sketches or give me the pros and cons, negatives, positives, all that sort of stuff. And thanks also to you who've been leaving WhatsApp voice notes on the Mario Rosenstock hotline. It's 087-268-5459. If you want to drop me a note, 087-268-5459 about anything at all. So I don't know if any of you were listening to Gift Grub this week on the Ian Dempsey Breakfast Show, um, but if you did, you'd know that Nigella Lawson, the sultry... Um, uh, culinary expert, the gastronomic um, beautiful woman um, that she is, is in town interviewing for the role of Michael D. Higgins's new personal chef. Um, well, while she was here, she took the opportunity to do a few radio and TV shows, naturally, a bit of publicity, including the six o'clock show, would you believe, on Virgin Media One. You know the way they have a cookery spot. And I wondered, what did Martin King make of it all? Oh, welcome back to the six o'clock show at seven. Or is it the seven o'clock show at six? Or is it six o'clock show at seven plus one? I don't know anymore. Anyway, let's see what's going on in the kitchen on the six o'clock show. Uh, none of your scrubbers uh, today. None of this uh, low life uh, cooks. We have a real superstar in the kitchen. Oh, we're joined by Nigella Lawson. Nigella, lovely to meet you. Oh, it's absolute pleasure to meet you, Martin. Oh, absolute pleasure is all mine. I can tell you that for nothing now, Nigella. So what are you going to do for us tonight, Nigella? Well, Martin, you see, I love meat. Right. I'm an unashamed meat eater. Are you? Yeah. Meat to me means the deepest of deep pleasures. I can tell that, yeah. And a sense of satisfaction. Right. If I go a week without meat, oh, I go a little bit gaga. Okay. In my hand here, I have a long shank of pork. I can see that. It's very long. Mm, I like the pork on the bone. Really, do you? And as close to the bone as possible. Mm-hmm. Because the juices are sweeter there. Yeah. And you can tell by... Licking them from your fingers, how moist the juices from the hot, salty pork needs to be. Then I like to go at the pork with a rolling pin and just give the fleshy meat a good smack. Nice and hard at first, so that it's good and ready to be consumed. Martin, you quite all right? Martin, you look a bit bothered. (laughs) (laughs) Ho, ho, says you. Um, Now, the star of that sketch was none other than my colleague in Today FM, Pamela Joyce. And Pamela is um, a rising star 
within the world of radio at the moment. At the moment, she does the um, seven o'clock show on Today FM. And uh, she's also, you may have heard of her filling in for Ian Dempsey or um, Mairead Ronan. And, uh, but Pamela is a, a very talented woman because um, she's great at doing characters. She has a lot of characters of her own, but she's also a very, very good impressionist. And I've used her several times on Gift Grub. And so she does loads of characters like Kim Kardashian and Kylie Minogue and Cardi B, the rapper from Brooklyn, and even Adele, um, Adele the singer. And uh, so listen, I have her on my podcast next week because um, she's a very interesting uh, woman in her own right. And uh, I think she was uh, worth a guest spot on my on my podcast, but also very funny. So we have some very funny things planned um, for next week. So brand new and exclusive comedy here every week on the Mario Rosenstock podcast. And it's all for free, of course. So your follows, subscribes, ratings and reviews, they're all really, really valuable. Please uh, keep them coming. Um, And a huge thanks to our friends, of course, at Curry's PC World for their ongoing support over the last few months. Don't forget to pay them a visit and check out all of the great personal tech products, TVs, speakers, kitchen appliances, you know yourself and so much more. All available in Curry's PC World. So, are you ready for some juicy stories from the corridors of Leinster House and much, much more? From the Players' Lounge at Old Trafford and from the interrogation room on the set of In the Name of the Father. Lise Hand has them all. So let's jump in. Makes me so happy. We're back. And Lise, it's delighted, I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. Um, thank you. Thrilled yeah. to be here. No, no, thank you very much for, for, for agreeing to do it. And of course, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about the podcast is, is politics. And uh-huh. uh, not serious politics, but, but, but colour politics. And of course, <laughs> you spent a good bit of your career being a parliamentary sketch writer, much along the lines of somebody like Miriam Lord um, and that kind of following around politicians and finding titbits and stories. And, That's right. Yeah. Yes, and, yeah. And so you have, and, and in a way, of course, I do, I have as well. I've spent my life basically listening to see if there's anything going on about politicians and then I write a sketch and do funny voices about them. And of course, you've had to meet some of these politicians after having done a story about them. Yes. I mean, you see, this is the danger um, about working in Leinster House because, you know, if you're, say, a news journalist or maybe a business journalist, Chances are, if you write up, give a fairly bad review or you write a bad piece about some, you know, tycoon or whatever, chances are you're not going to bump into, uh, into them the next morning. But of course, if you're based in Leinster House and you have a you have an old scalp at somebody for doing something daft, I mean, there's no doubt about it you're going to bump into them the next morning. And there's one particular corridor in Leinster House. It's a sort of long corridor that connects the bottom of the doll chamber with, say, the, the restaurant and the canteen, the bar. And it's very long and there's no exit o- exits off it. So if you turn onto that and next thing you see an emesis coming down, you're screwed. I mean, there's nowhere to go. And all you can just do is sort of whistle, look in the, you know, look up you the sky. You could do the COVID thing of just turning your face to the wall. You could. <laughs> I know, like, you know, for future, pre- maybe. Yeah, now we yeah. know that trick. Yeah. But so, I mean, you really were kind of, you know, you were kind of screwed. You just had to basically take your, you know, it, well, it depended. I mean, it, you know, most of them would just kind of roll their eyes and go, oh, you know, whatever. You, you, some might get chippy occasionally, but most sort of took it. You know, they realised it wasn't personal. It was just business, just what I had to do. Yeah. Give us a few encounters you may have had. I mean, it's, it's, um, well, there's one here. I have Brian Lenehan. Ah, uh, God. This yeah. is Brian Lenehan Jr. This now. is Brian Lenehan Jr. Yeah, there was one um, morning I was in Leinster House very early. There was something happening early and I had written a sketch that was in that morning's uh, Irish Independent and I had had a you know, good kick off him for saying something completely daft in the chamber. 
And I was running down to the canteen to get an L breakfast roll. You know, we live at High in, in Leinster House and came around the corner and there was one of those slap bang cannon into papers in the air, everything on the floor. <laughs> so this was, you know, this wasn't anything I could avoid. Yeah. And he, so we, you know, I was trying to help him pick up the papers and uh, he's like, Ms. Hand. <laughs> oh, so he was he the Minister for Finance at the time? He was yeah, yeah. the Minister for Finance. And I'm like, Minister. And uh, so he said, you are very, you are very bold this morning. Now, he was, you know, he had a great sense of humour, right? So I was like, well, I had to do it now. You know, I had to do it. And I said, because you should go onto the canteen now and fortify your, your spirits with a good rasher. And we had a bit of a laugh. Mm. And anyway, I headed off. Anyway, fast forward to later that, that day and I walked into Toner's Bar for a drink and some of the Fianna Fáil press officers were in there and they called me over and they were like, oh, we heard it happen this morning. And I was like, what happened this morning? Uh, oh, we heard that like Brian Lennon bumped into you and he tore into you and he gave you hell and there was like a big ding dong. And I was like, that's not how I, rem- I remember. Now, there had been nobody else on the corridor. There was only the two of us. So I can only assume he went back up to the office and went, I met that one and I gave her a right <laughs> piece of my mind. Yes, yes. So, so he acted the tough guy. So he acted the tough guy, bless him, you know. So, but, you know, generally... It was rare that, that you know, somebody would, would take absolute issue with you, yeah. I have to say. Well, I'll come back at you then, and because I have obviously reportage myself. I'm not yes. a journalist, but I write sketches and then I'm on the radio and I'm on, in Marconi House and yes. we have one lift. <laughs> oh, and yeah. uh, that lift, as all lifts do, they open and you never know what's going to happen when you open that lift. So in I go in the morning and I open the lift and I close it behind me and there's nobody there. And suddenly, just as it's about to close, the door opens again. And in, in a foot comes and it's the, t- the T-shirt, <laughs> Brian Cowan. Oh, no. And three of us, his minder or his, his, his advisor and me are standing there in the lift for approximately 10 seconds. His head is down. The door opens. The, 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 the door opens. He's about to get out and he lifts his head up and he goes, you know, I'm giving you some good material, aren't I? <laughs> and I, I didn't realise he talked to me and I just said, T-shirt, you're the gift that just keeps on giving. <laughs> and he laughed and walked out. And, uh, and I remember that was a particularly nice encounter. Yes. Basically every second day I was doing sketches on him. Yeah, yeah. At that point I had done a sketch on him where um, he had taken over uh, as somebody had offered him a job as uh, minding the shop down in some Circle K. And uh, <laughs> I, I had him behind the, the, the glass in Circle K and he was said, no, just mind it, Brian, just mind it for the day. And he was making all these sort of mad offers to people who come. We have a special laugh in here, two twixes and four. And he bankrupted Circle K by the end of the day. And then they went, Brian, we've run out of money. And then there was an explosion in the background, a fuel tanker had blown up and everything. And so, Wonderful. so, so apparently, he, he, they, you know, the, that, those sketches yeah. kind of go around and stuff. So that's yeah, my yeah. Little, a little Brian Count story. Well, I like so it. You've Leo Veracker story. Before. Was this about the ploughing championships? Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, the ploughing champ. Yes. Um, Leo Varadkar at the Ploughing Championships. Now, he was only a couple of months in the top job and it was probably his first big outing into the, you know, into the public arena. And I think quite a lot of the Tishig don't really realise that you, know, you can have a certain level of, you know, publicity or, or focus or people looking at you when you're a line minister. But it's it's actually a really big jump up when you're suddenly Taoiseach. And there's a huge then rigmarole and palaver and carnival that goes with that. So poor Ali arrived down to the ploughing. Now, I don't know whether you were 
that familiar with the, with the ploughing. You've, down, you've been down there. You I have been yeah. down there. Okay. So obviously our radio stations covered extensively. They so do. you're aware that there's about 100,000 people down there and there's stalls everywhere. Mario, it's insane. And I mean, it's it's just this huge place, stalls everywhere, people crammed on. And when a Taoiseach arrives down, it's like this rolling mall of that goes down around all between all the stalls and down to look at the, at the ploughing of just people coming over to sort of shake hands. There's press everywhere. There's cameras there's kiddies been pushed forward in county jerseys, you know, to get their hand shook or whatever. And it's just, it's an extraordinary, it really is quite extraordinary and very intense. And Leo was just, the first year he went down, he was an absolute, I mean, I just think he was an absolute shock because he wouldn't be the most natural politician anyway. I mean, he really isn't. He's not like Anenda Kenny, who just has had this great way about Let's be him. honest, Lise. I don't really understand the vloggers, you know, to be fair. <laughs> you know, the cultures, you know, I mean, Castleknock. I went to school there. I put my hand up in a TV audience once. I asked a question on questions and answers. That's as close I got to bog people. But, you know, yeah. to, you know that is just, I mean, the All-Ireland final, that was a shock. The ploughing championships, you know, forget about it, Lise. <laughs> that is it. And I would say that was literally the reel that was going through the poor man's head because he was walking around and, you know, people were, again, the kids were coming forward and everybody was trying to have a word. And he just wasn't able to kind of interact at all. And it was kind of cringy walking around. I mean, you, you sort of felt sorry for him, though, because particularly because he was following, you know, Enda. I mean, Enda was a nightmare for us journalists because he never left. He'd go down for two hours and he'd be there for bloody four hours. He'd be up and down every combine harvester, yeah. shaking every hand, hit, you know, like, you know, taking photographs with slithers and, and tractors and whatever, you know, and no bother to him. And, you know, arms crossed, you know, standing up at a plough. Talking about the land and all that. I mean, he was I thought you were going to say talking to the plough. Well, I mean, if you thought that it would be a good photograph, you'd yeah. do that too. So then he had the exact opposite. And I remember, I mean, he was down for about an hour, or an hour and a half, whatever, and he left on schedule. And I just remember going over to one of the sort of Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael handlers who were there and just sort of put my arm around his shoulder and just going, you have got your work cut out for you with this one. And I mean, he couldn't even laugh. He was like, I know. Now, in fairness, in fairness to Leo, he did work hard at it. And by the time he came back the following year, he was much more relaxed and he was able to a certain degree, you know, to stop and talk to people, interact and show interest in shiny bits of machinery that he had no idea what they were for <laughs> and that kind of thing. But, you know, he did. He actually did try his best the following year. But yeah. Massey was... Ferguson. How interesting. <laughs> God. I, I thought they were a band from Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> he would have known them if they were a band from yeah, Seattle. Exactly. Pascal probably would have. <laughs> Definitely. Pascal would know the bands. Um, yeah, no, I've, so I've, I'll come back at you. I have a story for Leo, sorry about Leo as well. Um, and this was, we went to the 2012 European Championships, my, the breakfast show and the, in the station. Ireland had qualified and uh, Giovanni Trapattoni time. And we got out at the airport in Poland. And who was there but Leo Varadkar? Now, I think he was Minister for Sport at the time. Could have been a minister for transport and tourism and sport at the time. Not quite sure, but he was a minister anyway. And we went, oh, there's Leo Varadkar, you know. It wouldn't be like, there's Leo. It was more like, there's your man Leo Varadkar, like, to us at that time. And anyway, um, but because we're the, on- we're the only Irish people here, how are you? <laughs> Do you recognise us? Ah, oh, there you are. Yeah, I, I, I recognise you. And, and of course, Ian Dempsey, yeah. So he said, Do you want to share a taxi? So we shared a taxi with Leo. Anyway, in the back of the taxi, Leo suddenly comes out with, Ian, uh, something actually you don't know about me. That, um, when you were in Densey's Dam, I actually sent a painting into you and you, you, you held it up on the telly. Oh, no. From Leo, aged five. No. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was rather nice of That's him to do. That's kind of sweet, yeah. actually. But what I, the kicker to this is, 
we got out of the taxi and then he asked for Ian's autograph. Oh, he did not. Yeah, I thought that was really nice as well. That's kind of sweet, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. You know, this is, we, and then, you know, we forget that Ian Dempsey was such a hero to so many kids growing yeah. up because, you know, they associated him, you know, a certain age group with the den and stuff. Yeah, like. But it also had showed you how time had, had deftly moved on. Absolutely, um, you know, and made, made poor old Ian feel ancient. Yeah, but of course he still he still sounds and looks, looks yes. very, very youthful. And, and I'm not just saying that because he might listen to this podcast, but he does. He does, no, and, I'd be the first to agree his, with and you. And that's his son over there. <laughs> <laughs> Being a colour writer, and I think we probably have this in common, is that, you know, um, for what we both do in our own respective fields, I know that especially if I'm, you know, out in the field, say, you know, on a campaign trail or there's a photo shoot, I might dander along and you will see faces drop. Now, not always necessarily the actual same minister, but, you know, you will see their handlers go, oh, my God, because they know that I'm there, you know, waiting for the person to fall into a hole Mm. or to say something daft or uh, Pascal Donahue, who we were just talking, you referred to earlier. um, I, I was, it was a very slow news day and I... There was a photo shoot on, I think it, there was some kind of country music festival that was happening down Temple Bar. I remember the photo shoot and he had the Stetson on. Yeah. And you should, I anyway rocked up because there was nothing on in Leinster House. And I'd so, every now and then you just have a look at the diary, take a flyer. I thought, oh, sure, I'll go along to that. Himself and Michael Ring were down. There was a photo shoot and there was bales of hay and there was guitars and so on. And Michael Ring um, would, is, of course, up for anything. You know, been a good Mayo man. You know, he's no shameless. Absolutely. Would do again a bit like Enda do anything for a photo shoot. Put the Stetson on, no problem. So anyway, Pascal's hands the Stetson, put Ox. it on. Ox. And I mean, it would more because I think he just loves his music so much. I mean, LCD sound system wouldn't wear a Stetson. In fact, Stetson is a fantastic word for Pascal to say. A very bad thing for him to wear. Thank you very much, Leif. <laughs> I don't think he's quite ever forgiven me because he, you know, he just saw me and my face lit up like a summer's day. Because you see the Sedston. The notebook came out and the pencil starts going across the page. And his face drops. And he just knows that's it. I know. I'm it tomorrow. Like I'm the, I'm it. I'm the colour tomorrow now, you know. So it was, I, I tend to compare Leinster House a little bit like a kind of a small country village. And you'll have your corner boys and you'll have your idiots and you'll have your sort of shape throwers. And then you'll have the people that are out sort of, you know, getting the tidy town organised and cleaning up the place. And there are a lot of people, you know, in Leinster House, there could be politicians in there that I profoundly disagree with with their politics, but I like them personally. And then the other way around, there might be people who might have a political view that would align with my own, but I don't like them as individuals. So... You know, it's like anything, I suppose, really. And as a colour writer, picking your way through that sort of minefield of personality and so on, um, you do end up... I do study people an awful lot because, you, you know, I study... It's about... Just like yourself, it's funny the, the parallels, but it's a lot of it is about observation. For instance, say if there's an altercation in, in the doll chamber and everybody is looking at the person doing the shouting... Quite often, you know, I'd be looking at the other people to see how they react um, because a lot of colour writing, uh, you know, is about observation and about trying to define somebody's personality and understand maybe why they said something uh, or why they do something more than anything else. And there are interesting politicians um, and, you know, going back to say someone like Pascal Dunu, I think what's interesting about him is that he has a very broad hinterland around him. He's not just about politics. I bumped into in places like the Button Factory, you know, uh, like at a small gig or, um, you know, we we actually 
at the end of every year, we do a kind of a review of the year on Matt Cooper's show. You'll be reviewing books. And I'm going, how did he get the time to read the books? This, like, this fascinates me, how he gets time to read the books. So I think the most interesting politicians are the ones that have interests outside of politics. And they don't just live, you know, as politicians. They have, like, other interesting sides, you know, interests and hobbies and a life outside politics. I think they're the ones that I find the most interesting. Um, and I always have done, you know, some are ciphers. I mean, some you never get to know. I mean, you know, I, I'm not saying anything new here, but like someone like Bertie Hearn was always a cipher because you never really understood what made him tick, um, even though he was ironically one of the most accessible politicians. Um, I'll give you a very just you know, a quick story of this. The accessibility was um, a friend of mine. She was uh, she, she worked on the foreign desk in the London Independent and she was in Dublin doing a you know, she was doing a kind of a giving a lecture or something in Trinity. She was staying in the hotel across the road, the Weston. As it happened, uh, the night she was staying there, Bertie Hearn was launching a book in the hotel. So I said to her, look, come down to the book launch. So she fetches up in the lobby with her passport. And I'm going, what do you need your passport for? She said, well, we're going down, we're going to the Taoiseach. And I'm going, <laughs> it doesn't work like that here. So he was in the middle of all the Mahan Tribunal stuff. So there was all kinds of stuff going on. Anyway, he comes in, rolling mall, downstairs, sees me and comes straight over to me. And um, we're both Manchester United fans and he'd been playing a gig the night before. And <laughs> he comes over and says, did you see the lads last night? And I went, yeah. And we had, to, you know, he said they badly need a new defender. And I'm going, I know. Yeah, totally. And then I said, by the way, this is this friend of mine and she works on the foreign desk. Now, this astonished me, right? He turned around and he went, Oh yeah, you very, the, the paper had a very good piece the other day on I don't know something like Korea or China. Now it was, there was like there was no way. I mean, he had absolutely no clue that he was going to bump into her. So I remember thinking to myself, you know, he goes around and he puts on the distatties and does, but there's a you know there's somebody who is at home kind of going, reading through the papers on top of everything, you know, this other kind of man underneath all this. But anyway, then he just nudged me and he said, ah, I shouldn't be talking to you about Manchester. And he wandered off. And I turned around to Anne and she was literally frozen. She said, I have worked in Westminster. I've worked in desks all around the world. I have never, ever had even like two seconds access to a, prime, a British prime minister. You know, she said, you have no idea like what you have here. And again, I think that does feed into something that Irish political writers don't really understand, just how unique, in a, to a huge extent, our access to the ministers and to the or to our Tishig, uh, you know, is. It's it's you know, you not many countries have that sort of same access where you can just sort of roll up to somebody and you know they're sitting in the canteen having their egg and chips or whatever and say you know have a chat or whatever. Now, obviously, there's a downside to that because they're they're. There's always a danger of this creating too much of a cosy kind of situation as well. And that's always the danger. But I think it is quite interesting that there is this great accessibility with our politicians mm. that don't isn't necessarily seen elsewhere. Well, two things I'd observe about that. Yeah, very interesting. And uh, one is he worked all the time. So he never stopped working. So the distat and D's and does, yes, but he also never stopped working. So when everybody else was gone to bed, he'd be ringing them going, what are you doing? Yeah. Why aren't you working on the na 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 I'm doing it. In other words, he was a lonely man, a lonely man. And his, his wife was his work. Um, but the other one was like the, the hail fellow well met. That was also um, that was also a myth because I actually remember he gave away um, one day on TV and and he didn't. I don't think he knew he did it. Ursula Halligan was um, chasing him on the pavement once for TV three. And she went. She went to the camera and then she went, so I asked the Taoiseach and then I went and I looked for the answer. 
And they cut back to the bit where she went, Tishuk, Tishuk. She was running a stiletto. So he's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> she's behind him. Tishuk, Tishuk, could you answer? He's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> she's there, kind of goes, Tishuk, Tishuk, can you answer about the man tribunal? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tishuk, Tishuk, will you please answer? Are you going to run? And he whipped around to her as soon as he and he said, Would you ever do something with yourself, would you? And it was just a moment where I was chilling, where, you know, you just saw that behind this is behind the Hail Fellow Well Met thing. There was something, again, quite chilling about it. Yeah, yeah. I think he's um, a person who was capable of doing whatever it took. Yeah, but I, again, it just goes back to that. I always find Tishik, you know, uh, just fascinating because they're, they don't end up there by accident, really. They don't. You know, there's it might be there might be happenstance and the, you know, a confluence of events, I think, as Brian Cowan once referred to something. But, you know, there there is a path there and... You know, what what made them the top guy? Unfortunately, it's all guys, obviously, so far. It's just I always just find it really interesting. I mean, I always enjoy watching watching like Tishig at work. I always enjoy it, whether it's in the chamber or out on the campaign trail. I do find it endlessly fascinating. I really do. But at least you're not just um, you're not just a, a, a sketch writer. Um, you're you're a journalist, uh, you know, in features, and columns and all that sort of stuff. But here's one, here's a thing that our listeners will find it interesting. So take it from here. Right. Without you in the name of the father might not have happened. <laughs> yeah. So we had Jim Sheridan. I had Jim Sheridan on this podcast um, a couple of months ago. Yes. And he was in Paris, I think. And we had a really, really royal chat. And, uh, you know, He's an incredibly deep thinking individual. Um, but tell me this idea from that point. In the name of the father, Daniel Day-Lewis, the story yeah. of the Guildford Four may not have happened without you. How is that? <laughs> well, I had read when Jerry Conlon's book, I mean, like everybody in Ireland, I mean, I followed obviously the story of the Guildford Four with huge interest in the Birmingham Six. So when Jerry Conlon wrote his, wrote his book um, about his experience, um, I just picked it up and read it. And I was absolutely and utterly just riveted by it. I thought it was the most amazing account and especially all the stuff about, you know, his father, Giuseppe and all that. I mean, it was just an amazing book. So I was friendly with Jim. You know, we'd, our paths would cross, you know, out and about kind of friendly, that sort of thing. And I bumped into him one day and I said to him, I have a book for you. And I must have either scuttled off and bought a copy or given given him my own copy and said, you've got to read this. You absolutely have to read this. Came So he, I think he went off on holidays, came back, rang me and said, it's absolutely brilliant. I want to do, do the film. Gabriel Byrne owned the film rights, as it turned out. Go away. So Jim dispatched me off to have a coffee with Gabriel. I knew Gabriel Byrne, but I think he it was kind of like, so if Gabriel told him to F off, it would, you know, it was it would be easier hearing it through me rather than through, you know, getting it directly from him. But anyway, Gabriel being a wonderful person and a general gentleman, he of course he wanted the film made and he came on as executive producer as well. And um so yeah, and then Jim just it was, you know, Jim has this way of you know, people in his orbit, they just suddenly find themselves doing stuff. Um, it's quite extraordinary how he works. So then it was like, oh, you know, would you do some research for myself and Terry George, you know, as we're putting the script together um, on sort of the, you know, get news reports and stuff from the actual time. And then it was kind of other stuff. And then as sort of the film came close, he said, look, will you take some, can you get some time off and come and work out on the film? And I was like, let me think about it. Said, yes, I can. Can you hold the camera there, Lise? <laughs> not can, can you hold the boom up there? Well, you're not, you know what? You're really, you know, you're not that far wrong. Um, mm, because, thanks, you know, I, <laughs> I started off again, sort of doing research, you know, for, for the script and kind of director's assistant, basically, when stuff needs to be done. 
But then I ended up casting extras uh, for the whole, all the prison scenes. And of course, obviously I went through equity, but I also went to, you know, I was kind of a bit of a rock chick at the time, so I knew loads of musicians. So I just went and basically got all my muso friends and said, do you want a few, make a few quid? And the first day, Daniel Day-Lewis walked onto the set and saw the prisoners. He's going, Jesus, these are a really dodgy looking lot. Where did you get, where did you find them all? And I'm like, they're all my friends. So, and you know, then I ended up going to Liverpool to kind of do advance for the locations there and all that kind of thing. But I mean, but again, when we were in Liverpool, my best friend, uh, Marion, lived in, was living in London, came up for the, just to hang out. She knew Jim as well. She ended up in the film. Jim was shooting a scene um, and he needed an extra face up with uh, Jerry Connell's ma up in the up, up in the in the gallery. So he just said, "Right, you." She was in next thing. She's in makeup, and next thing she's like there, mm. and she got a close up and all. Like so, yeah. you know, that, that's sort of chaotic work, way he works. But I mean, it was just such an amazing film to work on. I mean, it was just you know the great thing about it was it was probably I think the first. Irish made movie that sort of told a really important story from an Irish point of view, um, kind of saying this is actually what we think. You know, this is this is this is our story without really kind of, you know, taking into account what the, the you know the, the sort of the British establishment might think about it. And I think Jim did a really clever thing that he focused on the kind of relationship between Jerry and Giuseppe, which, in a way, defanged it politically. You know, on the surface, Turned while it, it was still, an, story. yeah, mm. but while it was still obviously an incredibly political film, yeah. and um, and I have to say, I mean, obviously Danny Day Lewis is just—he's just an extraordinary individual. But Pete Postlethwaite, who played Giuseppe Conlon, was just such an amazing actor. I mean, as well. So you know, just to be but come here, and, on and the I, set, it was, and they're both extraordinary creatures. Yeah. But the, the you 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 had a hand in the what the beating scene. <laughs> It's a I famous to, yeah, scene in the Daniel movie Day where Lewis, uh, we talked about it with Jim. This whole thing of yeah. Day Lewis staying up all night and all this sort of yeah. stuff, and then being, being tell me you had a, you yeah. had a hand in that. that again, that was one of the Jim's things. He comes into me, you know, in my little trailer one day, and he goes, "Daniel wants." I'm not even going to try to do it. Obviously, sitting here with you, but like Daniel wants, um, he wants to experience a police interrogation to kind of you know get the sort of sense of you know what it's like. So. Because obviously I was I, I was a news journalist at the time, so I actually knew loads of coppers. So I rang a couple and said, look, do you want to come along? They were kind of going, what? So we set up a thing and he was interrogated for a few hours and whatever. And afterwards, Jim comes in and goes, he, he wasn't really kind of, you know, tough enough. He didn't really feel that, you know, there was enough. So I said, OK, well, look, how far does he want me to take this? <laughs> I mean, you know, how far do you want, does he want us to go? So he said, no, he's up for kind of anything that you you organise. So I went, all right. So I rang a couple of seriously tough detectives that I knew and explained the situation. So to cut a long story short, we had the set was in, um, to do a lot of the, the, the kind of incarceration scenes was in Patrick Dunn's, right? So we'd set up, we'd built a cell there. So what basically what happened was Daniel Day-Lewis he got a knock on the door of his apartment where he was staying. Um, I think he was out in Island Bridge and he was literally arrested, bundled into the back of a car. Um, now, he knew something was coming, but he wasn't too sure what it was. Um, they, we brought him down, threw him in the cell, kept him awake all night, lights on and, you know, no blankets and really cold and banging on the door and all this. So trying to recuperate. Then he was brought in. We had an interrogation room set up, a camera in it, obviously. Now, what I had done was I had organised... Um, for him to be interrogated about a genuine real life open case murder, right? Now, I won't say which one it was. The really weird thing started happening that 
there was just a couple of odd coincidences, right? When they were, in, there was two teams going in and out interrogating him. And it was kind of odd because just in the course of interrogating him, two things happened that he, it turned out that Daniel had actually been in Dublin the day that this particular murder had happened, right? Like it was just by, just by sheer chance, right? And there was a couple of other coincidences. And at one stage, we could see it happening that the cops just suddenly turned into cops, right? Yeah, they went into the <clears> And they, they just suddenly went, it's impossible this guy did it, right? Fuck it. Fuck. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so there was just this sort of, I mean, it was, it was quite extraordinary, right? Yeah. So, and I think Daniel at they one became stage. what they are. Yeah. And I think Daniel at one stage actually genuinely began to get a bit worried because, <laughs> you know, so it was completely mad, right? Yeah. And it, but it was quite, it was really intense. I mean, it was really, I mean, I'll tell you something, Mario. At that moment, that's where I decided that the life of crime was not for me because, I mean, I was thinking there's no way I could ever want to ever go through that, like a proper interrogation. But anyway, so that kept on. I think we kept him sort of, you know, this went on until fairly late in the day. I think he was brought back then. I think we drove him back here. He was driven back to his apartment, right? He got a couple of hours kip and then he was straight back on set. And that was to do the famous scene in the interrogation scene where the the cop comes and puts the gun to his head, right? Which is the most powerful scene. Is this the Jerry McSorley? The Jerry yeah. McSorley scene, which is just an intense scene. And um, it was, so, you know, everybody was saying, geez, he looks terrible. And yeah, he did look terrible, right? Because he had basically no sleep for two nights. But that, I think later on that evening, we wrapped early and um, we went to, there was a great bar that we all drank in the Dockers, long gone, right? Fantastic bar down Sir John Rodgerson's Quay, right beside, right beside U2 Studio. We were all in there. Everybody's getting hammered. I think we were off the next day and um, Daniel and his driver, right, who kind of, he became really pally with as well. They kind of drifted in. They sat at the other end of the bar and I'm drinking down the other end of the bar with all the sparkies, with all the sort of the rest of the crew. And I was going... Jesus, hide me for Christ's sakes, because like, you know, Jim came. So I think Jim had sort of said to me, he had no idea it was going to be that intense. So I said, Jesus Christ. So I'm hiding in among all the sparkies right down the other end of the bar. And next thing, a pint arrives in front of me. And I said to Pat behind the bar, I said, who's that from? And he goes, it's from Daniel. <laughs> so I lived to fight another day. <laughs> ah, lovely. That's lovely. <laughs> That's such a great story. This podcast is proudly supported by our friends in Curry's PC World. Back to the chat. A lot of people listening, not everybody listening, would know who Veronica Guerin is. So you were friends with Veronica Guerin. Tell me who, tell them briefly who Veronica Guerin was and your relationship with her. Yeah, well, I mean, Veronica works in Sunday Independent and it was one of those things um, where we just, we actually bonded straight away. I mean, she, the Sunday Independent at that time was full of great characters and she was one of them. And we bonded very quickly over, we both loved obviously Man- Manchester United and we just got on really well. She was really easy to get on with. She was just this great sparky personality, really warm and very, very funny. And um, so we got to know each other quite well to the point where we started going to games together. And we would just have so much fun on those trips. They could be day trips, they could be overnight trips. And it was always just been, you know, she had been going over to United since she was a, like a teen, a young teenager. She used to kind of bunk off and go over on the ferry and so on like that to see them. And she was genuinely dedicated. And um, probably we had some very memorable trips. But there was one particular day that I managed to finagle a couple of tickets for the Players Lounge through various connections I had. And she had never been in the Players Lounge. So this was just like all her Christmases coming together. 
So we headed into the players' lounge after the after the uh, you know after the match, and she was just hilarious. Like she was obviously we had a camera, you know, and we're going around taking photographs of each other and in every corner and so on. At one stage, I saw her standing over. Paul Ince's man of the match trophy and literally kind of looking at her handbag and looking at the trophy and I was going, you can't. And she's like, he has loads of them. You won't miss it. So, um, and then we got, uh, right. Oh yeah. I got Ryan Giggs's autograph and I, all I had on me was a five, like an English five pound note. So I got him to sign that. <laughs> and again, Eric Cantona came in. And of course we both, like the only thing we ever fell out, you know, about was, you know, which one of us, Eric Cantona, would, would basically ride, you know. Yeah. And, uh, I will we, ride you we, both. <laughs> well, you know what? I like the hat trick. <laughs> I go for the hat trick. I brace two of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it was the one thing we used to discuss endlessly. So um, anyway, he drifted in looking like a god, of course. And uh, it was the only time I think I ever, uh, my, my life I ever saw her Literally dumbstruck. I mean, I was going, go on over. And she goes, I can't, I can't, I can't. And I was going, go on over. So anyway, persuaded her to go over and she got a photograph. But anyway, uh, we were in the airport later that night. And I went up, got a drink for us and came back. And about a few, ah, about 10 minutes later, I go, um, I look at my purse and go, ah, feck it, I'm after spending the bloody fiver with the with the autograph on it. So she's like, she, what? And I said, ah. so of course I just threw my hands in the air and the airport, the airport is packed. I mean, there were four or five flights all heading back to Dublin from Manchester. But up she got and she went around every single person, every single person in the departure lounge going, can I have a look? Have you got a fiver? Have you got a fiver in the change? <laughs> and she found it. No way. She found it. She came back with it aloft. I know. Excellent. Yeah, but it oh, kind of spoke. Yeah, but it spoke to her absolute determination, you know, yeah, because determination was her. Yeah, I mean, once she got set her mind to do something, she just went and did it. And she would go through walls to, to, to do that particular thing. And Veronica's 25 years yeah. uh, dead. And yeah. I suppose what? I suppose without her, the Criminal Assets Bureau may not have been set up. Isn't that right? Absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I think the the shock and outpouring of, of grief and anger that happened when she was murdered, um, a, a sense that, that this had got out of control and that nothing had been done to rein these guys in. And they brought back the doll from summer recess and they set up the, the you know, the CAB. And um, yeah, I mean, that was probably... The, at least one piece of political action came out of that. It was, but it was, yeah, it was a time where it is that, it was our candy moment, you know, it was like, do you remember where you were when you heard? And where were you? Because I know where I was. You're right. It was a Kennedy yeah. moment. Yeah. Well, I you? was actually meeting a friend for lunch and I had turned my phone off and uh, I was coming back in, to the independent office and I was cutting through the, you know, the arcade there at the GPO and mm. there was there's a newsstand and I saw a group of people standing in a circle around the newsstand. And I actually started to laugh. I thought, Jesus, that's like something you see on the, you know, the moon landings or an outbreak of war. So I went over to have a look and see what they're looking at. And they were looking at the late copy of the Evening Herald going, Veronica Geer and shot dead. So I actually found out about it from the front of the Herald. And I didn't believe it until I went, I mean, I literally went back into the newsroom thinking, no, they've got it wrong. She's just been shot. But when I walked into the newsroom and just was one of those things where every face turned towards me because they've been trying to contact me and they did, couldn't get a hold of me, then I kind of knew that was that was it. So, yeah, that was our candy moment. Yeah. Really. And just in, in newspapers and everything, just to change the subject slightly, did you have you ever, did you ever work? You were did you work in the Sunday Independent? At all? I did. Yeah. I so worked. did you work under Angus? I worked under Angus Fanning. Angus Fanning. And he would have been one of the colourful characters. Surely you're talking about an Eamon Dunphy and. Yeah. Um, oh, absolutely. And, I mean, it was it was a. <laughs> It was an absolute 
yeah, it was the sort of haven for every every crazy, really, you know, including myself probably to fetch up in. But did was, you work with Vincent Brown? And I, Vincent Brown gave me my start. Um, yeah. What did you think of Vincent Brown? And what do you think of Vincent Brown? Because I have obviously I have something to do with him. I I I I I I, I worked with him a little bit on his TV show. I did sketches on his TV show, and he asked me to do sketches on his TV show. He, I remember meeting him, and he shambled into the Westbury looking like Columbo. And he just sat down exhausted and I went, kind of put out my hand and went, oh, Mario, and he went, ah, yeah. look, I just want somebody to do something funny on my show. And I just think, I saw you on the Late Late Show doing Michael Flatley or whatever. And I thought, <clears throat> I thought you were extraordinary. And he said it to me, almost accusing me. I, I felt, I felt that I did something wrong. I thought you were extraordinary. Michael Flatley and all that. And I want you to <clears throat> come and work on my show and just do something funny or whatever. Or whatever. <laughs> So yeah. I said, I'll do it as long yeah. as I can do you. I said, I don't give a shit who you do. <laughs> <laughs> so what, because what, of course he's a legendary figure in journalism. Oh, and of course, you know, the gamut of emotions are riled in people between what he's the Satan and Beelzebub and uh, and the other ones will go, he's he's the Messiah, you know, so. Well, I mean, you know, he gave him my start. So, I, I mean, I always look fondly, you know, like think fondly of him. And again, it was just one of the things I literally hadn't got the price of the bus fare home. And I was walking past the Tribune and I walked in and I said, can I see the editor? No thought in my head, nothing. This was literally just, I literally did not have the money to get home. And after about a 10 minute wait, I was ushered into his office and he was proofing the, you know, proofing pages of the newspaper. And he just sat, I sat there for about 10 minutes looking at him. And then I began to realise what I'd done. And he said, who are you and what do you want? And I said, uh, well, I want a job. And he goes, doing what? And I said, well, I'd like to write a music column. Um, I, like, I know lots about music. And you only have that old fellow, BP Fallon. He knows bugger all about what's going on on the local scene. And of course, the, you know, there was a really vibrant Irish music, live music scene. This is sort of, you know, after U2 had made it huge and you couldn't throw a pint across anywhere in Dublin without hitting a bass player. And um, so he went, he just looked at me and he went, who's playing the bag of tonight? And of course, I hadn't a clue. And I just went, Aslan. And he went, right. And he comes around and he gets me by the arm and he drags me out of the office, right? And he drags me over towards the door. And I, and I start to laugh. I thought, oh my God, I'm, getting, I'm actually getting slung out. And just at the last minute, he kind of veered into the small little office where there was a guy typing on a, on a typewriter that turned out to be Kieran Carty, who was the uh, editor of the arts section at the time. And he went, OK, um, what you say your name was? So I told him my name again. And he said, right, she's going to do a, a music column uh, starting next Sunday. And then he just walked out and he just left me. And Kieran was there going, who? Who's this? <laughs> He's like something from a movie, isn't he? He's like something from a movie. Mm. So, but that was, that was it. You know, mm. that was my start. And that, that's really where, mm. you know, I could have. I've always been fascinated by him, actually. And yeah. um, do you know the way you, when people die? Uh, I don't like to talk about people dying. But I always wonder, you know, when people die and you kind of wonder, I wonder what, I wonder what people will think when that person dies. And so I know it's a little morbid, but like, for example, when Gay Byrne died, I, I, you know, I was often thinking, what will it be like when Gay Byrne dies? Obviously, I spent half my life doing Gay Byrne as, as an impression. And I was, oh God, when Gay Byrne dies, I'll tell you, there'll be something. And of course there was, you know, but I think Vincent Brown is one of those people um, that there will be a there will be a kind of a little bit of a Jerry Ryanish outpouring kind of thing, because I think he means a lot to a lot of people. He does. And, you know, he, he and there's a huge amount of journalists in the business today that went through the great school of journalism that was the Sunday Tribune. Um, it was a great learning place because, as I found out, it was sink or swim. You were as good as the last story. He loved news stories. He loved journalists who chase news stories. 
So it was a it was a place to work that that really fostered the love of news and chasing news in, you know, in in young hacks and young journalists as well. Um, so, you know, from, it was a great school to start with. I was very lucky to kind of mm. be there first. I really do. So, yeah, I mean, there's, of course, he's got up people's noses and some people mm. are, you know, but that's great. You should get up people's noses. I mean, it's 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 almost trite of me to say it, but there's a certain truth in it as well that there are very few characters like him in journalism and in entertainment and, and media anymore because people people almost by, you know, their own proxy turn themselves into a more vanilla because vanilla is safe and being safe is, is almost the place to be these days. Some people call it being in the middle, but being safe is a place where you won't get into trouble. Being safe is a place where you won't be accused of saying something you shouldn't or doing something you shouldn't. Yeah, but journalists should get into trouble. I mean, oh, that's well, 100%. The, this know, is that's, what I'm saying. Yeah, this I is mean, almost what I'm saying. I'm saying... Where for wither journalism if 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 everybody is afraid to say anything or to put an opinion out there, because what I mean by saying something is I don't mean by saying something that's um, offensive. I mean, literally putting an opinion out there. There are people out there now who are literally afraid to put any opinion out there because they know that if you put an opinion out there, you will receive a backlash from the people who don't like that opinion. Yeah, I mean, I think as a journalist, you have to I the, the best way, I think, to be an effective journalist to be an effective news journalist as well um, because the more stories you break you know that you were sort of talking earlier on about politicians being you know this sort of view that everybody's you know they're all corrupt and they're all you know the same and all that there's a very negative view of journalists that I think is largely unfair as well is that you know we're all in the pocket of this that and the other and we're all you know part of the establishment it's a lot of journalists that are genuinely trying to break stories and to trying to uncover corruption and, you know, that are campaigning journalists. Um, and I think that's, re- you know, that's really important that they are given, they are given the sort of the latitude by their employers and they're given the backup by their employers. I mean, this is also very important as well, is that those who run and own newspapers um, will always have the backs of those that are out on the front line and maybe making waves or expressing opinions or calling people out or speaking truth to power, if they don't have the backup of the people who own the newspapers or the people who edit them, they're just exposed. That's the trouble. And I think, you know, it's also a lot to do with the work practices today is that because there have been so many cutbacks in journalism, because it's, everybody operates on a bare bones, that people are sort of stuck in a newsroom in this sort of treadmill of just sort of turning out sort of, you know, journalism. Cut and um, paste. And it's cut and paste in journalism. Whereas really the best way to get stories is to let everybody out and to talk to people. And on the to, field. Uh, on the field and to cover, you know, go to local council meetings, you know, go to all those sort of those, those things in the community mm. because that's how you engender trust between members of the public and between journalists is that if they see you and they know that they're, you're covering things and you know that you're taking an interest in what's going on in their area and that they can, you know, you can be trusted, um, you're more likely then, you know, to, to, to get, to, you know, to get stories and so on as well. So it's, uh, you know, I think in a way I sound like an owl one, but, you know, the old way of kind of doing that when you went out in the field, I think is, that's been lost. Mm. 
Uh, Lise, I'm very much enjoying this conversation and definitely about the journalism thing. We could talk for hours and hours, but I, I think I'll park it there because um, I ask all my guests to just fill out a little questionnaire. And it's a little, um, so a few questions uh, I ask ostensibly to get the conversation started. But actually, I got the conversation started <laughs> in reverse ways with you. But anyway, um, and I knew you'd come up with a good one for this because I asked you, if, is there anything getting on your wick at the moment or any soapbox subjects that you want to get off your chest or something you want to offload? And you said you, you had an interesting one about statues. What's this? Yes. I mean, this is one of my soapbox. Uh, issues I've written about a few times it really really gets in my wick that you can cross Dublin city or any town or city basically in Ireland and you go a long way before you see any woman standing on on a plinth anywhere (laughs) any statues you dander down O'Connell Street and there you have you know the Bow Larkin and Parnell and O'Connell whoever you have in yourself all thrown shapes up on plinths and you have, you know, you'd have to look up maybe at the top of the GPO and you might see, you know, fidelity and liberty, whatever they are, two kind of, you know, fake females. And then you go up to Suffolk Street and, you know, our most famous statue is a <laughs> fishmonger with, you know, with her knockers out, you know. <laughs> and you, you, you really... Well, then there's Luke Kelly, not only another bloke, but there's two Luke there's Kellys. There's two Luke Kellys. I mean, <laughs> there's, didn't want. there's two Luke Kellys. And, you know, we had the floozy in the jacuzzi, hello. And, you know, who ended Phil up... Phil Linnett. Yeah, who ended up getting, you know, out, I think she's out in Croppy's Acre, Croppy Acre yeah. or something now. And you had the two islands with the bags there on uh, on Mary Street. Yeah. But there are so many women that, you know, should be lionised. That, you know, there's so many that should have statues to them because, again, it's about visibility. Yeah. You know, they really should. I mean, you should have people. You which, know, Rosie Hackett gets a bridge. Yeah. Which women would you put on statues? Off the top of your head now. Well, Catherine Lynn, um, I, Kathleen Lynn, I'd put... Um, uh, Catherine McGuinness mm-hmm. I'd put Hannah Skeffington Sheehy I'd put um, God I hate been asked this on the, on the spur at the moment now um, I mean I have a list as long as your arm you know I'd like to see maybe someone like Katie Taylor like of the yeah. of the, the, the current crop. Dolores O'Reardon to, I mean more yeah I mean like go back to like uh, Lady Augusta Gregory I mean there are you know there's there's so many women uh, Edna O'Brien Markovitz well, she had, and in fairness, there are there are actually two. She is one of the, the one of the rarities. Okay. There's, a, there's there's two Markovits, but that's really there's a bust in Stevens Green, and there's a, a full length one on um, Townsend Street. Mm. But there are so many women, so many revolutionaries, so many women in the fields of like science and medicine, that you know, uh, so many women that worked in sort of trade unions and politics, mm. and there's just. They're nowhere. They're nowhere. They mm. are literally nowhere. I mean, there should be buildings. There should be roads. I mean, Jesus, Mary and Joseph. I mean, you could go like, you know, James Joyce said, you're going to go from one t- end of Dublin to the other without passing a pub. <clears throat> well, you can't go 10 feet without passing a bloke on a plinth in, in Ireland. Yeah. Like, can we just like sort that out, please? Yeah. I totally agree. I totally agree. And, and, and very well observed and well pointed out. All right. Um, listen, we have some people who've been listening on the line, um, Lise. So uh, I hope you don't mind talking to them. They've been listening because I have people who listen in on the con- on the on the podcasts, and they they listen to the conversation and then they'd be fascinated with you. So people who'd be interested in your work and all that sort of stuff, you know. Yeah. So I think um, who's first? Oh, um, actually, Jim Sheridan is on the line. It's your old friend. He's been listening in. Um, Jim Sheridan, say hi to Jim. Hi, Jim. Lee, Lee, great. Oh, you know what? I really, really, really enjoyed the conversation. But listen, Daniel was on to me and he was wondering if you have any more ideas for any films. Now, he's willing to have the shit kicked out of him. And if you have any more ideas, he says there's another point in his version. 
<laughs> okay. Okay, I will have a think about that now, Jimbo. I will. Oh well. Yeah, oh, really enjoying the conversation. Okay. Thanks, Jim. Great stuff. <laughs> Fintan O'Toole of the Irish Times is there as well. Say hello to Fintan, Lise. Hello, Fintan. Good evening. This is Fintan O'Toole of the Irish Times. I am a great admirer of yours, um, Lise, but I would like to know, apart from myself, of course, who um, and what journalists do you admire, per se, per chance, in Irish journalism? Well, Fintan, I'd have to say that I, if I was looking at the Irish Times, I'd have to kind of give it to Patrick Frayne. I think he's a wonderful writer. Yeah, Patrick Frayne, he's a, he understands the zeitgeist and reverses it in a kind of a peculiar kind of, in a sense, he, yeah, in a sense, he, he distorts the truth. But um, no, so yeah, you like Patrick Frayne. Yeah, I have to say, I'd, I'd have to say he's the best writer in the Irish Times, male writer in the Irish Times. Yes, sorry about that, Fintan. The best male writer? Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. thanks very much. Sorry about that, that now, yeah. yeah. No, that's but, okay. Uh, sure, I'll see you around. And... Yep, absolutely. Won't be seeing yeah. you down at Mulligan's anytime soon. <laughs> oh, Roy Keane's on the line. Oh, no. Say hello to Roy. Uh, hello, Roy. How's it going? Uh, Brand and yourself, and yourself. I'm okay at the end of the day. I just wanted to ask you a question, if you don't mind. Okay, but be gentle with me, Roy, please. No, I would be gentle. I was there that day. I was there that day. You were in Old Trafford. I was there that day. You were in Old Trafford. You came in. You went around to Incy's Man of the Match trophy. I saw that. <laughs> I saw you went over to Ryan Giggs. Why didn't you come over to me? Well, um, you see, I you looked kind of a bit thunderous, so I didn't No, 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 I didn't look thunderous at all. I was hoping you'd come over to me and you didn't. I was telling the lads, I know this journalist over in Ireland, Lee Sand, she's a big deal. When she comes in here now, she's going to look for me autograph, we're going to do some photos. You completely ignored me at the end of the day. Well, you you know, you did look a bit scary. I mean, I just didn't want to sort oh. of interrupt you. I mean, you know, I really didn't. And I was, but I was talking to Dan Zerwin. Yeah, I know. We roamed together, for fuck's sake. Okay. Jesus but... Christ. You went up to Dennis Erwin. Yeah. You're rubbing it in now, are you? Well, he's just such a kind of fun guy, you know. Dennis Erwin, a fun guy. Ah, fuck. Sorry, I he's hung up. Sorry about that, Lise. I think you should. <laughs> Sorry about uh, that. Um, oh, by God. Listen, do you know who's on the line? Joan Burton is on the line. Say hello to Joan. Is she? Hello, Joan. Long time. Hi. Good afternoon. Good evening, Lise. I'm a big fan of your political columns. And you know what? Can I just say, I couldn't agree more about your comments about women on statues. What politicians? What about if we... Who's the most famous? Which female politician has held highest office in Ireland? Apart from Mary Robinson and McAleese. I wonder who that is. Well, it would have to be yourself. Right. Where would we put the statue? I was thinking maybe a quiet corner of Leinster House, somewhere. How about outside in Grafton Street, just in front Brown Thomas? That would be in keeping with your background as a Labour politician, yes. Thanks, exactly. Smoked salmon socialist, straight into Browners. <laughs> Thanks, Joan. That's brilliant. And um, at least, geez, you're playing a blinder here altogether. And we asked you if you wanted to be interrogated by Miriam O'Callaghan, eviscerated by Roy Keane, when you kind of have been, or celebrated by Christy Moore. Which did you choose? Oh, I chose Christy Moore. I mean, there's no higher honour for any Irish citizen to than to be name-checked in any shape or form by Christy. Brilliant. Well, he's on the phone. Say hello to him. Ah, Christy, how are you doing? How's it going? How's it going, Lise? Lise, it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I'm here down in uh, Monkstown. Um, I'm an ordinary man 
with me brand new Porsche Cayenne and I'm down here in my mansion in Monkstown and I'm just having an absolute ball listening to you here on the ISDN. <laughs> and do you know what I've done, Lise? I've taken the liberty of writing a little bow-round tune about you. <laughs> I, myself and Andy Irvine were on the blower there yesterday and we came up with a few, um, we came up with a few chords and a, a thing on the bow-round. I've written a little thing. Would you like to hear it? Oh, I would love to. I would love to. Come on, Joe. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. The bow-round. Oh, she's a journal. She's an author. She's got me in a ladder. With a lovely Lisa, without the lovely Lisa hand, there'd be no in the name of the father. <laughs> the father, 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 the father. It was all her idea, don't you know? Jim Sheridan didn't trust her. Till she organised Daniel Day-Lewis being beaten up by fellas with knuckle dusters. Now that's method acting. She'd follow politicians and musicians to all sorts of leagues. She loves her football and got a fiver signed by Ryan Giggs. She would have loved a ride off Eric Cantona as well there. <laughs> Three of them in the bed. Criminal Assets Bureau all over it. Oh, she's a legend of journalism, the finest in the land. I suggest we erect a statue of the lovely Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> Lise, that's it. That's Sorry. it. You have run the gauntlet of the Mario Rosenstock podcast and you've come out with flying colours. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you and um, we'll get a great conversation out of that. Thank you, Mario. It's been an absolute joy being here. And that's it. I really enjoyed my chat with Lise Hand and. Uh, I hope to see her again sometime for a pint. We've never we've never met before. Um, we did the podcast and we're hoping to sit down at some stage and have a pint together and share some more stories. Thanks, of course, as always, to uh, Curry's PC World for their ongoing support. You can email me to talk to me personally, mariorosenstock at gmail.com. I read them all. I'm also on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, on all the usual social medias. And I just joined Instagram. I'm actually an Insta bitch now, would you believe? Yeah, so hit me up on Instagram. I'm at mariorosenstockofficial. Um, listen back to loads of the episodes we've already generated in the past Um, they're all back there scroll through and have a look Um, but in the meanwhile I'll be back same time same place next week take it easy